almost everyone who practices some kind of religion prays. It may look different. It may be described differently. But there is a sense in which everyone gives themselves in one way or another in an attempt to connect with the God that they worship. And our faith is no different. We see again and again in the scriptures the call to prayer. We see people praying. We hear the admonishments to prayer. And, and we, we come to, to hear it and see it and, and come across it so much that sometimes I wonder if we take it as seriously as God does. In one of his books, Dallas Willard tells uh, about an encounter the pastor had with one of his parishioners. And uh, while they were talking, they were in a heated, the, the parishioner was describing a heated situation and he was pouring out his heart to the pastor and he was angry and he was upset. And without even thinking about it, he swore. And there was this awkward, uncomfortable moment. You know, I mean, I get that when people don't know me, find out what I do. All of a sudden, everything just sort of changes, you know, like, oh, okay. And he had one of those moments. And then the guy sort of regained his composure and he said, you know, Pastor, he said, I swear a little, you pray a little. I don't think either one of us means that much by either one of them. <laughs> yeah, you get that, right? Yeah. And, and, and when I read that, I thought, okay, when I pray, when we engage in prayer, what does it mean to us? I think in the story of Daniel, we have, we have a, a, a vivid image, a picture of the kind of prayer to which God calls us and the gift that God gives us. Isn't it fascinating that the only vice in Daniel's life is the fact that he prays a lot? Wouldn't it be awesome if that's all people could find about us? The only, I, I can't, the only thing about them is they pray way too much. And so they, you know, they're looking for something in Daniel, and that's the only thing they can find, and so that's where they, that's where they go after him. I have found that probably the, the, the evil one does the same thing with us. You know, it's, it's those places where we think we are, we've got it together, we figured it out, and, and that's the place where he often attacks us. And so he attacks Daniel with this. And, and the law is made. And Daniel, verse 10 says that Daniel, hearing about the law, knowing about it, went to his room, up to his house, went up to this little room he had, opened the windows toward Jerusalem, and did what he always does. He prays. You might look at that story of Daniel and think that his response was sort of an act of defiance. Well, the king's not going to tell me what to do. This law is not going to change my perspective, not going to tell me what I can and can't do. But it's not an act of defiance. We have a tendency to sort of react that way when people push against our faith. When our backs are against the wall, when people are, are pushing against us, our natural reaction is to act in defiance. But Daniel doesn't act in defiance. He just does what he always does. He just does what is natural to him. He does what he has done every day since he 
I don't even know how long, but certainly all the days he's been in Babylon and now in, in, in Susa, he, he is continue. He just every day, three times a day, goes to that room, opens the windows to Jerusalem and prays. There's a little part of me that thinks, I bet the voice in his head was, well, maybe don't open the window today. You know, you can pray just as easily in your mind as if speaking the words out loud. Don't be an idiot, Daniel. You can hear how the evil one would be talking to him about that because he does that to us. But Daniel says, this is who I am. This is my existence. This is my life. I do this. And to do anything else would be wrong. Because, see, Daniel understands what I missed for a long time. I think I'm seeing it. Is that we read the story, our, our, you know, if you went to Sunday school, you heard this story, you talked about this story, maybe you reenacted this story. I remember I was just thinking the other day, I had a record album when we were kids of all these children's Bible stories in it. And this was one of the stories that we listened to. It scared me, I'm pretty sure, about the lions and things. But, but you know, the, Daniel just does what he's going to do. And we read the story and we think the real danger point is the lion's den. But actually the danger point is in that room in front of the window. The real crux of the story is not the lion's den, it's the window. It's the prayer room. Because the real danger here is not that Daniel might be eaten by lions. The real danger is that Daniel might not pray. That's the point. Daniel might not pray. That's the temptation. That's the struggle. And I think that that these Men who are opposing him, they want him to pray because they want to see him go to the lions and get rid of him. I think the evil one's looking at this and going, this is a win-win. Because if he, if he prays, then he's done for. And if he doesn't pray, then he's really done for. I think there is something in Daniel's response that is sort of like one of the things that we witness at, at a wedding. You know, at a wedding, uh, I stand in front of the couple and, and the, the, usually the groom is standing here and the bride and her father walk down the aisle and they stand here and, there's, and, and there is the groom and the bride and the father right between them and there's something very symbolic about that picture that you see there, the father between the two of them. And I welcome everyone, dearly beloved, we're gathered together in the sight of God and these witnesses and talk about marriage as an act of God and it's a gift of God and, and Paul thought it was a good idea and Jesus said it was a good idea. This is, this is good that we're doing today. And then I look at the couple and say, now, why are the two of you here today? And that, and, and that question's formed into a different kind of question. I look at the groom and say, do you take this woman to be your wedded wife, to have and to hold from this day forward, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, and forsaking all others, keep yourself only unto her as long as you both shall live? And I look at the bride and say, do you take this man to be your wedded husband? And when, after each time I ask them that series of questions, they look at me and say, I do. And the interesting thing to me is that the, the liturgical name for that part of the ceremony is the declaration of intent. And this couple in front of all the witnesses is declaring their intent. They are saying other relationships are going to take a back seat to this relationship. When things are good, 
This relationship is first. When things are bad, this relationship is first. This is my intent, and we are declaring it in front of everyone. And there is a sense in my mind that Daniel, when hearing about what has happened, walks up to his house, up the steps, to that room, opens the window, and prays just as he always has, is declaring the intent of his life to be about Yahweh. And the the lions and the pressure don't really matter. It's about Yahweh. This is what I've always done. This is what I do. And to not do this would be to go against the grain of the intent that I've declared of my life. It's interesting to me that Daniel doesn't seem at all worried about the lions. The only person worried about the lions is the king. The king can't sleep at night. I mean, I remember that little record album I had, the picture of it was Daniel wrapped up in like almost swaddling, swaddled, and he's laying there and the two lions are looking at him and his little sign says, do not disturb. (laughs) And he's just peaceful about it. And, And Daniel praying doesn't guarantee that the lions will not, will leave him alone, but really that's not his biggest concern. It's doing what he's always done, meeting God. Because Daniel understands that prayer is so significant to our lives. Philip Yancey talks about, in one of his books, about going, traveling the world, often visiting Christians in places where their faith is oppressed, where they are persecuted. And he says, they say to him, please tell people to keep praying for us. Tell the church to keep praying for us. And he assures them that the church is praying for them and that we will continue to do that. And then he says, but what can we do to help you? We want to be involved with you. And they look at him with this just sort of, you know, strange look on their faces. They're, they're, this incredible response. They look at him and say, pray for us. That's the whole point. That's what you can do for us. Because they have a sense of understanding the power of prayer that we often miss. It doesn't mean we don't get involved doing other things, but it starts, it starts with the power of prayer. It makes me wonder if when we pray, when Jesus taught us to pray, lead us not into temptation. If maybe, you know, we tend to, we say that and we're thinking about all the kinds of sins that we are tempted to commit. All the ways in which we fail. Maybe Jesus, at the heart of what Jesus is saying, lead us not into temptation, is, Father, don't let us not pray. Don't let us miss the source of power in our lives, of connection with you, of your grace and relationship. Don't let us miss that. Because the great temptation of life is to keep us from praying. To keep us from spending time with God, connecting with him, hearing him. And those temptations come in such a variety of ways. Things that are clearly bad and things that are clearly good. Things that we know are unhealthy, things that we know are healthy for us. And the unhealthy bad things are pretty easy to see. It's the other ones that get in the way. These things that are good that get in the way of what's best. And in those moments, when we, sometimes when we're really committed, you know, we, we say, well, I, you know, we want to do acts of mercy and we want to be involved in people's lives. And we should do that. That's important to do. 
But if, if, if doing acts of mercy becomes more important to us than the time we spend with God, then the acts of mercy will not do for us and for others what God intends them to. It will eventually weaken us. Because in many ways, well, well, I think it was Oswald Chambers that said, prayer is not preparation for the battle, it is the battle. There is a sense of this life of prayer, this, this daily, ongoing commitment to prayer, that it is preparing us for the things that we have no idea will come. Now, this is going to sound a little crazy to you, but this is how my mind thinks. I was trying to picture this this week, and this is what came to me. Many of you probably are familiar with the, uh, the sitcom in the 60s, the uh, Andy Griffith Show. Right? I mean, Andy, the sheriff of Mayberry, and he's sort of the moral compass of this community that sometimes goes off the rails. And, you know, he's this fatherly figure, and, you know, he's the, usually the voice of reason. And, and everyone admires and respects him. And then there's his sidekick, Barney. You know, Barney Fife. Barney's his deputy. And Barney's the excitable one. Barney's the one that gets out of control. Barney usually throws fire, throws gasoline on the fires. And, and he usually makes things worse. And, and Barney's a real stickler for the rules. You know, Andy, he, he dresses, you know, very casually. And Barney wears the tie and the hat. And he's got his sidearm, his gun with him all the time. He carries that gun everywhere. Here's the thing. He's, he's been a little bit, I don't know, unsafe with his gun through the experiences of their time. And so Andy won't let him keep bullets in his gun. He has one bullet that he keeps in his front pocket. And, and, and that bullet is there. And whenever uh, they're about ready to face a crisis, he reaches in his pocket and pulls out the bullet, puts it in his gun, he's ready to go. And that's fine as long as you know the crisis is coming. But there are episodes in which the criminals sneak up on them and Barney's trying to get that bullet out of his pocket and trying to put it in his gun and he drops the bullet and he drops the gun and it's a mess because it's, he's not ready. Now you compare Barney Fife to Superman. And the thing about Superman is if you shoot bullets at Clark Kent, they still bounce off. It doesn't matter if Superman's wearing his dress clothes or not. It doesn't matter if he's wearing his glasses or not. He's still Superman. And isn't that something, too, when he pulls off his glasses? Now, you guys don't even know who I'm, who's talking to you now, do you? You have no idea who's standing up here. You're thinking to yourself, I thought Wes was here today. What happened? I don't know who that is. Oh, now I see. Okay, got it. Great. I'm sorry. My mind goes on these tangents sometimes. Well, you know, he's always prepared. He's always ready. And there is a sense in which the prayer in the immediate moment, we need to do that. We're called to do that. That's an important kind of praying. In the crisis, in the moment, we pray and we take everything to God, whatever comes. And he welcomes that. He invites that. He encourages that. That is a vitally important part of praying. But there is this kind of praying that we see in Daniel that is a life kind of praying. It is meeting with God regularly. It is a pattern of our lives. And, and, and we, so that whatever may come, we're ready for it. There is a source of power and strength and connection to God that we simply cannot see and experience if all of our prayers are in the emergencies, in the crises. 
And I would almost argue that our prayers in the crises will arise and have power and meaning because they come out of the everyday prayers with God. There is something about the repetition of spiritual disciplines that is important for us. And I think that's what we see in Daniel. It's just who he is. It's what he does. It's his life. You know, athletes will often talk about muscle memory. A basketball player, you know, will you practice shooting enough times that it just becomes natural to you. And I suspect that the, the great shooters of professional basketball, Stephon Curry or Michael Jordan, whoever you want to talk about, when they prepare to take a shot, they're not thinking to themselves the whole time, you know, I got to stop. I got to make sure my feet are right. I got to make sure my elbows right. I got to make sure my, you know, by that time the ball is out of their hands by the opponent and at the other end. You just do it because they've done it so many times. They're must, they have a muscle memory for that action. And there is something about a spiritual muscle memory of prayer that we develop that when crises come, the first thing we think about is turning to God. When life is good, we are reminded that God is gracious and merciful to us. It just becomes a part of our existence. And when I look at Daniel, and again, Daniel understands, I think, that this is the moment. The crisis is at the window, and he does it seemingly without hesitation. Despite the threat of the lions. Because it's who he is. And what's fascinating to me is that when you begin to, to live that kind of life, when, that, when, you, when we engage in that kind of praying and that kind of connection to God, our eyes become opened to things that we missed before. James Smith says that, that apocalyptic literature, like Daniel and Revelation, uh, the intent of, the, of that kind of literature is not really predictions, like we often think it is. It's about unmasking. It's about unmasking the, the realities that our world tells us are true when they're really not. It's about reminding the church of what is real and what's not. Of who the only true God is and who is not. And I am convinced that this life of prayer gives us a vision of things. I think that's what what moves Daniel, because to not worry about the lions, because whether he is rescued from the lions or not, the kingdom of God is still true. And Yahweh is still the only God. And he will trust him. And Yahweh is the king, not Darius. And you sort of get a hint that the scriptures are telling us that. Because isn't it interesting that the king, who supposedly has all this power, does not have the power to overturn this law. And he's forced into doing what he doesn't want to do. And Yahweh, who doesn't really, isn't, isn't, isn't limited by the things that Darius is, protects Daniel against lions when you would think no one could. And there are lots of times where you and I need our eyes open to what's going on in the world. You know, we, 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 are, we are sent messages continually that this world 
is the real world. That the, that the ideology of this world is what matters. That the, the kingdom of this world is the kingdom. And we can get so bombarded by those messages, we forget that it's the kingdom of our Lord and of our Christ that is the real kingdom. That God is on the throne no matter what it looks like. And that his kingdom will prevail. And to give ourselves to that kingdom, even if it means something difficult from this kingdom, is always the right choice. And I think when we begin to see that, it changes how we respond to our culture and to the things that are coming against us. I worry because I see it in myself. I hear it in other people. I hear it a lot. I worry that often our response to the to opposition of our faith is fear. A lot of what I feel, the way we're responding as the church, is out of a spirit of fear. We're afraid that things we treasure and value are going to be taken away from us. We fear that, that things are going to crumble and fall away. And maybe the reason we react like that is because we don't have Daniel's perspective and the perspective of all of Scripture. Maybe that's why Jesus can go to the cross because in the garden he says, Father, what you're doing, what you want is right and I trust you and your kingdom will prevail. So let's do this. And when you know that the kingdom of our Lord and of our Christ rules all the other kingdoms, the kingdom of Nebuchadnezzar and Darius and Caesar and everybody else, when we know God reigns and Jesus is Lord, we don't have to respond in fear. We can respond just the way Jesus did, with grace and love and truth and compassion, and justice, and mercy, and love. Because we've come to see that despite what everyone tells us, those are the most powerful weapons at our disposal. And it's almost as if Daniel is saying to us, why would you fight a battle with a paper sword when you've got the real thing? Why would you use weapons that get rusty and are moth-eaten and are going to disappear when you have the weapons of eternity at your disposal? And I know it doesn't seem like it. I know it doesn't feel like it sometimes. But Jesus is still Lord. And God is still on the throne. And we can do nothing better than to connect with him and spend our lives understanding him, hearing him, obeying him, giving our effort and energy to him. Sometimes a life of prayer like this, the discipline of prayer, feels like a burden. It feels like we're sacrificing so much. We're giving up time and energy and things we want to do to spend time with God. And let's be honest, it is a sacrifice. There is a calling to that. 
But what we miss is that prayer is a gift of God. That God gives us this 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 gift that, that enables us to connect with Him and to hear Him and to open our lives to Him so that He can fill us with His grace and transform us and set us free because we are connecting with our Creator. We're connecting with the one who loves us with an everlasting love. We're connecting with the one who wants everything that is good for us. And does it work in our lives to bring about in us holiness and transformation and the essence of who he is? It's a gift. A number of years ago, someone handed me an article by Pete Jutras who for a long time was a professor of piano at Syracuse University. And he, um, this article was a synopsis of some things he said at, his, at a presentation to a uh, piano pedagogy conference. And he talked about his 15-year-old daughter who, you know, she's the daughter of a piano teacher. She, she has gifts. She plays. She plays well. But she's not really happy about it. I suspect most of us, if you were given piano lessons when you were younger, probably weren't happy about it. I wasn't. And so she, he said, you know, she's wrestling about this. And she doesn't really want to play. She doesn't want to practice. She does, but only minimally. Because they make her. He said, and then she went to piano camp for four weeks one summer. And sometime in that piano camp where they had to practice three hours a day, but they also had other kinds of, of uh, social interaction, and they had fun, and they were doing things. Something in that camp turned the light on for her. And when she left camp, she was different than when she went. And he said, when she got home, we had totally different discussions than we had before. Before, I would, he said, I would nag her about what to play. Now she was coming to me and saying, Dad, do you think I could play Rachmaninoff's Prelude like my friend at camp did? Yeah, I think you could probably do that if you want to. Yeah, I want to. Help me with it. He said, we used to argue about the piano. But, and he said, here's the thing. We continued to argue about the piano. But before, my, the arguments were, you need to go practice. Now it's like, would you get up off the piano so I can play a little bit? And he said, it hit me one day that what was happening here is that piano playing for her had moved from renting to owning. She, Before she was renting the piano, it was something she did because she had to, and it was forced upon her, but it was very short-term. I'll do a little bit, then I'll give it back. But now she was owning it. She was engaged in it. She loved it. And he said the fascinating thing was, the more she owned it, the more enjoyment she got from doing it. When I read that, I thought, I think, I think there's something of prayer in that. That the more we begin to understand what it means to give our time and our energy and our effort to engaging ourselves with the Almighty God, we begin to experience the joy of flourishing as He intended us to from the beginning. And is discipline a burden? It can be. It's a burden that's leading us to a life that is beyond what we could ever dream or imagine. 
if we will believe it. So the question I have for us this morning is when we think about this life of prayer, would we describe it as renting or owning? Holy Father, thank you for this amazing gift you've given us. Open our eyes to see who you are and the greatness of who you are. And give us Give us a new vision about engaging you in prayer. We ask this through Christ. Amen.